Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. Welcome to episode 96. That's right. On this episode, we'll be covering chapters 76 through 80 of The Words of Radiance by Brandon Sanderson. We will be. And in episode 97, we'll be covering chapters 81 through 85 of Words of Radiance. How did it feel to get to be the one to tell people the chapters we're covering next? It felt fantastic. Did you feel like a prognosticator? I felt power coursing through me. Chanting to a to a rhythm of righteous indignation <laughs> supplied by my gods. So my name is Chad. I'm Liz. And what we do in this podcast is we go through and we talk about these books in a book club format. We take a couple chapters at a time. We really dig into it. And we don't spoil anything past the chapters in the section. So... Liz has read through all of these things multiple times. She knows what's going on. I have not, so I am the unspoiled, unsullied uh, participant in this podcast, the unblemished one, (laughs) the one to be brought before the slaughter. And I, at the end, give my predictions about what I think will happen next. So that is the Duke and Duchess podcast in a nutshell. And we're back. It's been a couple of weeks. It has been. I I don't know what these things are in front of me. There's weird gauges and dials. There's this thing sticking in my face. I don't know what to do with it. But we're going to talk about an awesome book. We are going to talk about an awesome book. So what did you think of these chapters? I thought it was a good section. There's, It's the beginning of a part, you know, anytime, you know, this is part five. These are sort of the set up chapters for part five. So those are usually... And not the most exciting parts of the book. But overall, I think these are good because we we do get some kind of good, juicy stuff to talk about. Right. And before the end of this episode, we're going to discuss the the snapters from last section as well. The letter that was completed and the letter that preceded it. So hang tight for that. We will get to that at the end. The reality is we got a lot of work to do been a while the dust we're blowing the dust off of things there's <laughs> a lot of catching up to do you know you don't get to come back from vacation and like settle in you know you get you come back from vacation and the work has just been piling up in your absence and now you've got three thousand emails you have to answer that's just you know that's where we are it's true this is the the vacation laundry episode of right <laughs> <laughs> The Duke and Duchess podcast. Well, this is the longest we've gone in our history without having a podcast. So. It's true. It feels it's it's been weird. We missed you all, but we're back. We're back. We're in it. Well, let's get into these chapters. Chapter seventy six was called "The Hidden Blade." In this chapter, Kaladin sees Bridge Four off on their expedition. To everyone's surprise, Sabariel joins the war party, as does Aladar, one of Sadius's greatest supporters. Dalinar confronts Amaram about his lying, murderous ways and reveals that he has a new shard blade. So, In he, the most badass fashion ever. 
totally badass reveal of his new shard blade. Yeah, definitely my favorite part of the section. Right, and so we kind of start this section off with a little bit of a bang. We've had this this confrontation with Amaram building, and we finally get to see Kaladin kind of see the fruit of trusting Dalinar a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So that was pretty yeah. cool. No, it was cool, yeah. Definitely my favorite part of this section. Maybe even my favorite part of the book. Really? Maybe. This definitely is right up there with Dalinar, you know, uh, thrusting Oathbringer into the middle of the, the glyph that says justice, yeah, trading it, it for the Bridgman. This this was a, another Goosebumps moment for me as well. Yeah, it's not quite on that level, but it's but it's definitely good. Now, I do have one more housekeeping thing oh, that I'm oh. going to bring up do it. before we get too far into this. And I just want to let everybody know that there is a thunderstorm outside of our house right now. So if you hear Liz get scared and panic and yelp, that, that's why. I'm very brave. <laughs> so the other, the other thing in this chapter that made me sort of fist pump a little bit was when Siberial joins. Yes, that was a really cool moment as well. Also, a prediction I made several episodes ago that Shallan's meddling would get him to come out onto the Shattered Plains. I didn't know it, it would work out exactly like this, but but uh, yay, bravo. Interesting that Siberio chooses to bring Polona, his mistress, out on the Shattered Plains with him. Well, not just that, he seems to be kind of surrounded in like like this caravan of like pomp and luxury. Yeah, he's not trying to pretend that he's, you know, a rugged warrior going out on campaign. You know, I mean, he's bringing chilled melons and caviar. Right. <laughs> he's got his corgis, you know, with him. <laughs> yeah. He's not trying to fool anybody. So did we talk in your section summary about Sadius and Iali? No, no. That's a very short little snippet in there where Sadius is watching them leave and... Yeah, and Iali poses to him... I hope that's how you pronounce that. Yeah. She poses to him, hey, Dalinar, Aladar, all these people out, this would be the perfect time to try a coup. And I was thinking the same thing. So I was right there in her camp. But Sadius says something that I thought was quite clever, which is, from his perspective anyway, we don't need to. Right. Why? Why risk the political capital? Let them go out there and kill themselves, and then they'll give the kingdom to us. And then we don't have to look like usurpers. I like how you say usurpers. Usurpers. I also like... How do I say it? Just like you did. Usurpers. Usurpers? That's how I say it. Usurpers. Listeners chime in. They're gross. Who's right? They're so gross. (laughs) I also really like how Iali's like, we should try a coup. Like, we should get a pizza. Yeah. What do you think? We should overthrow the government. I've been thinking about red shoes. (laughs) Oh, wait a minute. I think we should execute the king. <laughs> it 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 is sort of ominous to me, however, this whole chapter that Dalinar is getting left behind with everybody who could 
provide him any protection and getting left behind with everyone who hates him. Oh, Elicar. No, well, Elicar as well, but I was speaking specifically about Kaladin. No, you said Dalinar, Of though. course I did, because that's what I do. <laughs> Kaladin is getting left behind in yes. the war camps yes. without Dalinar, without Bridge 4. He's yes. got the lope in there to protect him from Moash, Sadius, Amaram, and anybody that those fools want to bring around. And, and no Sill. And no Sill. And he's injured. It, he seems ridiculously vulnerable. He is definitely vulnerable. And he's still, he's, Kaladin at this point is still in a weird place of denial about Syl and, and what's happened to her. We actually open the chapter with him thinking, thinking about how he was told that Syl was dead. And yeah. he's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that this is terrible. But then when he's talking about her, he says things like, oh, she left me because I offended her. So he doesn't seem to quite grasp what he's been told and the fact that his powers really seem to be gone. Yeah, also I think there's a disconnect between what he's saying versus what he's thinking. And that's yes. that's the point that stood out to me about what you said there. I mean, my initial thought when I first read it was that I thought it was a check in the in the pro column, you know, a, a positive thing that he was saying it out loud, that right. he that he wasn't hiding it from the lope and he doesn't um, hide it later in this section from Moash. So I sort of took that as a, hey, look at him sort of acknowledging what's going on. But it wasn't until rereading it that I realized, yeah, but he's he's not he's not fully embracing what's going on. There's still some denial in there. Combined with the typical Kaladin, woe is me, that we've come to expect from his chapters. But you know what? I'm impressed with Kaladin in this part, in this chapter, when the confrontation with Amaram happens. Because he's kind of led to believe a little bit that he's the one who's going to get dressed down. And even as readers, we're it's almost hinted at that we're not sure what Dalinar, we know that he's got a plan for Amaram, and he kind of, when he sees him, he's like, oh, I got to go, I have to go deal with that right now. Yeah. And he, he's, you were led to believe in the conversation that we're not sure whether Dalinar believes Kaladin or not. Mm -hmm. And so in the conversation, he's saying, you know, we need to address these these claims against you and get it all out there once and for all. And then he turns and says, I believe an apology is owed. And Kaladin starts like he's going to have to apologize, but he's actually gets ready to do it, you know, because that's what Dalinar told him to do. But then he says, Dalinar says, no, no, not you, son. And then you're like, oh, yeah. Best words in the book so far. Not you, son. Yep. Yep. Without a doubt. I don't know that I would go so far as to say he was ready to apologize. He says, sort. he says, I, and then he pauses right. and he's like, this is the most humiliating thing that could possibly happen. And then is when Dalinar turns and says, not you, son. So, right. but he definitely didn't blow up right. like he, he may have in the past. I also, I really like the contrast between Dalinar's conversation with Aladar and his conversation with Amaram. 
because so Aladar shows up and he is one of Sadius's henchmen, one of his kind of yes men. And everyone's really surprised when he shows up. And Aladar says, you know, Dalinar says, how, how can I possibly trust you? Mm-hmm. You know, and Aladar says, well, you don't have you can't but I'm here. Mm-hmm. And he says, you know, I don't really buy all this, you know, building a, a Aleth car of virtue or whatever, but I believe that you believe it. And part of me wants to believe it. But he says, make no bones about it. Basically, I'm rotten through and through. I've done terrible things. He said, you know, I'm not the perfect knight that you're looking for. And Dalinar accepts him and says, neither am I, but we'll just have to do. You know, and when you contrast that with Amaram, who does, who comes out there and says, I am the perfect knight you're looking for, you know, and he's got yeah. his shiny cape and he gets rejected by Dalinar. It's a nice contrast. It is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, this is a good chapter. I have a lot of notes in this chapter about all of those things. I think the most obvious thing, again, is, as we said, Amaram. And so let's focus on Amaram for a little while. Let's do so, oh, Black Betty. Oh, Black Betty. So, it's interesting to me as well that leading up to all of this, every time somebody new steps out there, Siberial steps out there. Right. At, you know, Aladar steps out there. Amaram tries to, not shortcut, tries to undercut them and say, we can't trust them, send them away. You know, so... Siberio comes out there and it's like, he's not to be trusted. He's a coward. Get rid of him. Aladar comes out there. He says the same thing. And then he says, how spectacular would this victory be if we did it on our own? Mm. You know, trying to go Dalinar into not bringing these guys out there. Right. And I don't understand what Amaram's goal is. Like, what is it that he's trying to achieve? Why does he want Dalinar to go out there and be overmatched. It's sort of perplexing. The Siberial thing caused me to suspect, and I kind of all already suspected, that Siberial might be tied in with the Ghost Bloods, mm-hmm. and maybe Amaram suspected that. So when that came up, I thought, well, maybe there's a reason why he specifically doesn't want Siberial out there. But he does the same thing with Aladar, and there's really no reason for us to suspect anything of Aladar along those lines. So... It doesn't seem like that's the case. It seems like there's something else. That's definitely a mystery, although he doesn't push it very hard. True. You know, it's True. kind of an offhanded comment. So it's hard to know if he he seriously wanted Dalinar to do that or if he just is so obsessed with his image that he just really doesn't like the idea of these morally inferior people joining his glorious war party. It's hard to say. I mean, it also causes you to think, you know, was it Amaram's intention to go out there and betray Dalinar? And he wants as few people to have to deal with and as few people to come back and tell the tale, as few high princes to witness what he's going to do. It's it's hard to say. And because of what happens later, we don't really get to find out. Well, we do know that he did try to double-cross Dalinar. Correct. Uh, a, a little bit, getting a little bit deeper into the story of the Shard Blade. The backstory there is that the madman from the end of Way of Kings, who came in and claimed to be Talonel the Herald, he's got a Shard Blade. 
he is finally brought all the way to the Shattered Plains because no one in Kolinar, I guess, has the wherewithal the, to do anything. Wherewithal with him? to do anything, so they yeah. put him in a cart and carted him all the way out to the Shattered Plains. And Dalinar asked Amaram to look into the matter as a test to see if he would try to steal the man's shard blade. Not knowing that Dalinar had already bonded it, and Amram did indeed try to steal it. Yes, and that was an interesting moment to me, because I think to this point, it's the only thing I've seen Dalinar do that you can truly call clever. Because up to this point, what you've seen from Dalinar is somebody who is very true to his word, very committed disciplined, but all through the way of kings, he's politically just not very with it. He he's just, kind of a blockhead. Yeah, and he's never had to think about things in that way, or or maybe it wasn't until he started to kind of put a, a target on his back when he started having these visions and started trying to depart from a lethy society that all of a sudden he had to... St- he, he had to start thinking politically because up to that point, he was the Blackthorn and everybody loved him anyway. And he didn't know how to handle it. And now it looks like he's learning how to maneuver on the chessboard and, and play a little bit, you know, and not just be the Marlboro Man with a shard blade. I like that. Right? Or it was Navani's idea. Either way. Just saying. Either way, it was a very... It was a very savvy move, so I was very appreciative to see it. I did notice they don't do they don't give us a lot of description of the shard blade. They say that it's wider than most shard blades. It's almost more like a cleaver, this very broad blade. But we don't get descriptions about whether or not there's a gemstone, whether or not it has these encryptions or inscriptions up the blade, any of those other things that would give us any indication of whether it's an honor blade or a shard blade. Now, did you notice that its its description did not match the description of the sword that Talonel had at the end of Way of Kings? Yes, that was the other thing I was going to point out. Well, I beat you to it. You did. <laughs> Sucker. <laughs> you you beat me to it for sure. I tell you what, in this section, I did a lot of going back and rereading yeah. other things. Yeah. But yeah, the other because the one in that's described in the end of Way of Kings is more like this very long, slender sword. Yeah, it's pointedly described as being long, narrow, and straight, almost like an enormous spike. And then this yeah. one is deliberately described as being wide and cleaver-like. Yeah, which means that sword's still out there somewhere. And somehow there's a, another one. I mean... Yeah, where did the, yeah, where did the hell did this thing come again, from? Again, yeah. shard blades, like a dime a dozen. Places lousy with them. <laughs> you know the other thing that crosses my mind and crossed my mind for the first time in this chapter is that Amaram... As much as I think of him as being just kind of a, a buffoon, Amaram is walking around openly wearing shard plate that was taken from a ghost blood assassin sent to kill him. That's pretty ballsy. Right? 
I mean, it's like a mobster who goes out to dinner with a rival gang, and he chooses to cut his steak with the knife they tried to kill him with. That's right. Right? Old Black Betty. Yes, that's a... He's got some nads on him. He does. Like, (laughs) for all of his, you know, walking out there looking like a Chad and then puffing up his chest and going Mm -hmm. home with his shard blade tucked between his legs... There's still, you know, there's still something badass about Amaram. Mm-hmm. And when Amaram gets confronted and Dalinar says, you're a murderer, you killed men just to get a shard blade to satisfy your own greed, he says back to Dalinar, how is that any different than you sending thousands of men out onto shattered plains to die for you to get a gem heart? I mean, and let's put it out there. Killing someone is the only way to get a shard blade. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. It sucked that he had other men. I'm not. I'm not saying what Amaram did was right, no. but it is kind of funny that like you get a shard blade by killing the owner, and Dalinar's like, "You're you killed, you killed to someone get that to get shard a shard blade." blade. <laughs> <laughs> we all know. We know. We know. It's different when you're like in combat, you know, or whatever, with a equally armed opponent, but still just kind of funny well and amaram's excuse for what he did is he did it for the greater good for the greater good good. (laughs) and he he does for all that he does apologize to kalanin right i mean i don't know how you apologize and say i'm sorry i killed all your friends and branded you a slave and sold you into a life of toil and certain death. I'm sorry. (laughs) You know, but, but he, he does apologize and Kaladin senses that he's sincere and that his belief that he was doing it for the greater good is correct. And we, talked about this we hinted at it just a little bit last time but in this section this idea of the greater good keeps coming up over and over and over again i think it's interesting that this book we're reading now and the first series that we read king killer chronicle that concept of the greater good is a central theme in both of those books yeah, I mean, Amram is definitely an Amir. Right. Right. And so one of the most important character beats, I think, that happens in this chapter is Kaladin realizing that Amram's justification for doing what he did to his men is the same that Kaladin himself has been using to justify this coup against Elokar. Absolutely. And that's a, definitely a big aha moment for him. Yeah, and he has a, another one related to that in a later chapter. I won't spoil it now. Yeah, right. Uh, but yeah, this and really through this whole section, it comes up multiple times. The other thing I, I did not think about, never crossed my mind until until Dalinar says it. You can't imprison a shard bear. Oh, no, you can't. Which makes... Kaladin arming Moash with a shard blade even more stupid. Yep, that was pretty dumb. It just keeps coming back to that being a really poor decision. 
So chapter 77 is called Trust. Shallan is ecstatic to finally be off, and even happier when Gaz shows up with a copy of The Words of Radiance for her. She shares her research with Navani, who agrees to help her find the Oath Gate. Back at the war camp, Kaladin shares his misgivings with Moash, but isn't able to convince him to call off the assassination. We open this, and I, I couldn't help but laugh at Shallan's conversation with Adolin in the beginning, oh. where she's riding her horse. She's all excited. She's like, yeah, you know, giddy up, horsey. And mm-hmm. Adolin's like, hey, you know, take it easy. You know, we don't want you to get sore. And, you know, we have a carriage for you to ride later. And she's like, sore? Doesn't the horse do all the work? And he's like, Oh, oh, you guys thought you'd been on a horse before. And she was like, oh. <laughs> and it just made me think of uh, our honeymoon. Oh, God. <laughs> when I dragged you on like a four-hour trail ride. Yeah, I got a great idea. <laughs> First day of the honeymoon. <laughs> Let's go on a trail ride and ride horses for four hours. No, neither of us have ever done it. <laughs> I'd done it once before, but... <laughs> we spent the next two days just immobile. L- immobile. It is no joke. Yeah, it'll, no joke. You got to work your way up. It will beat your ass. That's for sure. My my first note is that Shalon now has a copy of this very book to read on the planes. But she's only gotten to chapter eight, so she doesn't yet know that she's the one who killed her father. So this, for me, is one of the scariest of the hypothetical nightmare scenarios. The classic hypothetical nightmare scenario where you're given a book. This doesn't actually happen, but the situation you're talking about. Yeah. You're given the book of your life, the story of your life. And you have to decide whether to open it or not. Do you do it? You have a twisted mind. That has never crossed my mind. Never? Not once. Never? No. Oh, it's kept me awake. What would I do? Would I open it to see how close to the end I am? Am I on the last page? What if I could? I mean, I've thought about it a lot. But that's not the book that Shalon is given. She is given a copy of... Words of Radiance, which is a book written about the Knights Radiant. That's right. That she at one point had a copy of, but it sank to the bottom of the ocean. It did. Huge bummer that. But now she's starting to be able to learn about the orders of the Knights Radiant. And she drops a big bomb on Navani as well when she is talking to her and lets her know that Yasna was a Knight's Radiant. Correct, yeah, absolutely. So there were two things out of that section that I noticed. Uh, One was the line about women who could melt stone with a touch. Mm -hmm. And then the other one, the one that really sort of stood out to me, is this quote that says, the wicked thing of eminence that led to the recreants. And that's one we've seen in a Snapter before. So my when, eyes go wide at you. Right? Really? I didn't I don't remember that. So there was one section that the Snapters were all sec- sections of Words of Radiance oh, okay. talking about the different orders, but there was a lot of information thrown at you in those and it was 
describing the different orders, but this passage was in there. Was it? Oh, okay. And it talked about a wicked thing of eminence that led to the recreants. Another layer in our baklava. I, what I thought was interesting in her research notes was where she talked about each order of the Knights Radiant having different ideals or standards to determine advancement. Mm-hmm. And so we've seen the difference in the in the two orders the that we've that we have point of view characters in. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's really interesting. Yeah, that the way the magical powers themselves evolve is completely different from order to order. My next note actually is that when this is all going on, right before Navani comes into the carriage, they're out there and they're kind of going into the weeping. And right before the weeping happens, they're in the they're in the carriage. The windows are closed. Nobody can look outside. And Pattern just says, it's here. So before the mm-hmm. first raindrop has fallen, mm-hmm. he, from inside, is able to feel mm-hmm. that the weeping has arrived, which just further confirms for me that all these strange storms and weather patterns are based on something tied to the spirit realm and mm-hmm. and all of that and what and whatever these sort of metaphysical forces are mm-hmm. i can't help but think that this world at one point did not have these sorts of storms mm-hmm. you know and maybe this is an example of what happens when odium rains is that your whole continent gets covered in creme. And rain. And rain. It's like it's like Seattle, but if the flannel had hardened. <laughs> so the thing that I love about Navani and Shalon's conversation, and really my favorite part of this chapter, is that they didn't drag out the reveal that Yasna had powers. You know, it, yeah. it it occurred to Shalon that maybe she should tell someone, but she didn't spend like 10 chapters going, oh, I should tell someone. She just is like, well. Well, how very different is it from Kaladin? Right. Now, to be fair, I think there's, I mean, besides the differences in personality, for Kaladin, this sort of came up in isolation of everything else. And for Shalon, Shalon stumbled upon it when she had somebody else who was a mentor for her. Right. Yeah. You can't really compare those situations. Yeah. So to in in Kaladin's mind, what he is doing is wholly unique, completely unprecedented. You know, he has no earthly concept, so he has right. more reason to be scared to reveal it. Right. Not quite the same thing with Shalon. Absolutely. But it's it's still refreshing. Yeah, absolutely. To just have someone actually share information that's pertinent to a situation yeah. without dithering about it for 300 pages. Absolutely. Absolutely. However, points docked for like half-hearted lukewarm love triangle crap going on. Oh, yes. Sorry, Shalon. Is she That's a strike. She does refer to Kaladin with the word smoldering. 
I mean, that's hard. It's to, bad. That's hard to read. It really is. <laughs> He's got that. I don't know that. Je ne sais quoi that smolder. Yeah, that that was a bit of a strike for me, and uh, and also dissing on my boy Adolin, wishing he was smarter. Oh, he's so refreshing. Even if he's dumb as a bag of wet hair, <laughs> he, you know, it's it's refreshing. It's <laughs> it's quaint. At least he's sincere. Strike, Shalon. <laughs> So, so then we have Kaladin and Moash. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. So Moash, I'm sorry, Moash thinking that Dalinar is going to return a hero and a king. Like, like are they really that stupid that they think that? There are, so that's a very stupid part of their conversation. There's one other part of their conversation that I also find equally as stupid. In their world, there's only been one sort of thing that has been this weird anomalous magical thing, right? Because shard blades and shard plate and all that is commonplace to them. It's not new, it's not unique. Right. But the idea that Kaladin can draw in stormlight and run along walls and dodge bullet or dodge arrows and heal himself is wholly outside of their scope and experience. So when Kaladin says, well, I think maybe this whole thing to kill the king is what cost me my magical powers. It's almost as though, you know, the world at large is saying, you can't do that. It's a terrible idea. They, neither of them bats an eye or thinks that maybe that's a sign from the universe that you should change what you're doing. Well, yeah, and at this point, Kaladin seems pretty sure that this is the wrong thing to do. Like, he's like 99% sure, but he tells himself, oh, it's too late. There's nothing he can do about nothing it anyway. Sitting here with a busted up leg. It's not like I could stop it if I wanted to. So he's definitely on the precipice of either a huge development or a huge disaster. Well, I mean, I think it it seems obvious to me that this is all going to come to a head and Moash is going to try to kill the king and Dalinar's going to try to save the Kaladin. king. Kaladin's going to try to save the king. I don't know how it's going to turn out. I mean, he did manage to kill a chasm fiend without any stormlight. So, right. And he's already killed a shard bearer without stormlight. You know, whether or not he, you know, how it happens or whether he saves the king, I don't know. But, but that that is going to happen and that Dalinar is going to, turn around and try to save the king is not really in doubt to me. I don't know what's going to happen right. as a result of it or how it's going to pan out. But Chapter 78 is called Contradictions. Shallan reveals her abilities to Dalinar. He tries to pack her off back to the war camp for her own safety, but she stands up to him and swears him to secrecy. A Parshendi patrol is spotted and the expedition gets its first glimpse of the new and improved Parshendi. Shen slash Relaine returns and surrenders to Dalinar. So this is a bit juicy as well. Yeah, my first note is less Spren, more Shen. <laughs> nice. Because we have this conscious calling out that Spren seemed to be disappearing or reducing in mm -hmm. power. I don't know what that means, but again, it seems to be tied somehow to 
all the weather and, and, and all of those things. Also, I thought it was interesting that fairly early on in the chapter, Pattern uh, sees creation sprint and gets upset. Mm -hmm. He says, useless things. They don't do anything. They flit around and watch and admire. Most Spren have a purpose. These are merely attracted by someone else's purpose. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. From what I know about Spren and Spren who are bonded to humans, isn't that precisely what they do? They're per they don't come with a purpose to do anything. They come for the ability to be able to think. And then they attach themselves to the human purposes. I think maybe Pattern is comparing himself out of that group that, that doesn't have sentience. Yeah. Yeah. It just seems like three fingers pointed back at him, sort of. Yeah, probably there's a, he takes that a little personally. I thought it was an interesting contrast, again, between Shallan and Kaladin, in that when the weeping starts, Kaladin's like, oh, Kaladin's always hated the weeping. In this chapter, Shallan thinks about how she's always liked the weeping. It makes her feel creative and kind of cozy, and yeah. just a lot of contrast between those two. It's almost like they weren't meant to be together. Right? Shadolin forever. Just saying. I know you agree. So Shallan also tells a story here about an artist who tried drawing only by the light of red spheres. And at first her work changed, but eventually her eyes got so used to it that her color palette and schemes went back to kind of normal because she just adjusted for the red light. And that yeah. she is afraid that her perception is being colored by something that she doesn't even realize and that she's going to miss something important. Yeah, and that was interesting. You know, she she comes at it from this angle of we have our own perspective and it, it blinds us to certain things. I can't see everything that's at play. And that's a that's certainly a valid observation. But the whole time she's talking about that, I just sort of kept thinking about it more from the perspective of how when something weird and unusual happens to your world, you just become inured to it. You just take it and think it's normal and you just live with it and work around it. Such as when, oh, I don't know, your whole planet is covered in creme and you have weird weather patterns mm -hmm. and, you know, these Parshendi show up out of nowhere with no... Uh, degree of agency like these people have just their whole world is clearly in some sort of very weird state but how could they know any different it's what they've been born into right and the idea that the parchment and the parshendi are different the idea yeah. that the parchment can't possibly think yeah. that's something that that's just so ingrained and accepted by everyone that now we they kind of have some proof that the Parshmen are more similar to, to the Parshendi than they thought. Yeah. Starting here in this chapter, yeah. Right, when Shen shows up and they realize, oh, hey, they can change form. Yeah, right. Which happens in the next chapter, so we're not there yet. Uh, oh, yes, you're right. So the other note that I have here in this chapter is Dalinar comes in uh, right before Shen shows up and he says... You have co-opted my scribes and cartographers. 
They hum of it like the rainfall. You're a Thiru. Storm seat. How did you do it? And I'm thinking, she didn't do anything. They were simply attracted to her purpose. Mm. She came out there with a purpose. Yeah, she did. And they could see the power of that. And they took it on as their own. Just like creation spread. Yeah. And and how can creation spread be a bad thing? It's creation. I don't think they're a bad thing. No, I'm, I'm just criticizing patterns, observation. Oh, right. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I love this scene where she reveals her powers to Dalinar. Again, continuing yeah. with this refreshing lack of dithering on Shallan's part. Yep. She's just like, well, do I trust him? You know what? I got to trust someone at some point. And uh, that was a, that was a badass scene, wasn't it? I mean, here, you know, she's come in kind of like, oh, like this poor, I don't even know if you're good enough for my son kind of. Yeah, right. Kind of maybe we'll let you be betrothed kind of thing. And like, boom, I'm a Knight's Radiant sucker. That's right. <laughs> Who's and, good enough for who now? <laughs> and Dalinar tries to give her the cape he just tore off of Amaram. Right? You need to be leading the Knights Radiant. She's like, slow down there, cowboy. <laughs> I got my own agenda. <laughs> Not here to be have your mantle placed upon me. I really like Shallan's agency through this whole thing. Absolutely. You, you kind of already hinted at mm -hmm. it, but you know, several times Dalinar, who is really arguably the most powerful person on the continent, mm -hmm. multiple times has said, you need to go back. Like, and after this- right. She revealed, you need to go back. Oh, you need to do this. Shallan's like, hey, you're not my father. You're mm -hmm. not my high prince. I'm here to do my own thing. Back off, old man. Also, she points out that she could probably take a spear through the stomach and live. Yeah. Like, you got to double tap the head, I think, on the night's radio. <laughs> <laughs> or just peer pressuring them into doing something really after school specially. <laughs> True. Come on, man. You want to kill the king? <laughs> so true. Come on, man. All the cool kids are killing the king. <laughs> Me and Tony killed the king yesterday. It was the coolest. It's the sneakiest way to take down a hero ever. Just say no to regicide. <laughs> Just say no. Chapter 79 is called Toward the Center. Dalinar and Navani question Relaine. He tells them that he fears that the listeners have been destroyed and monsters left in their places. The listener gods have returned and they are pissed. Pissed. So Relaine is not in storm form. So all the Porshendi have not changed. Correct, yeah. Well, And he says as much that you know, he sees this massive army, but they can't all have changed. Where are the elderly? Where are the children, etc.? And that's a concern he has. Right. And this isn't a powerful reveal to the Alethi. As you stated before, this is where it should be obvious to the Alethi that the Parshendi are shapeshifters. Right. It's not that there are Parshendi 
and Parshman, and then these, uh, I think as Royan says, well, maybe these are like the light-eyed version of right. Parshman. No, no. They're shapeshifters, and he uh, says as much. I feel like, I don't really have any evidence written down to go with this, I feel like the Alethi still don't really get it, though. Maybe that's just because I'm used to dealing with the Alethi. Right. They're like, so they're different kinds of Parshendi? I mean. (laughs) No, we shapeshift. So some of you have one shape and some of you have another shape? No, they, they just don't seem to get it. But that's really the only note I have in this chapter. So I and I just really enjoy in this chapter. So Relaine's reception by Bridge Four, and the fact that he's in storm form, but he still has his Bridge Four tattoos, and the way that he's he's treated fairly by Dalinar, but he's accepted back in his own into his old group. Uh, in fact, Rock is he, he's like, you know, he says I'm a traitor, and Rock is like, whatever, it's a small problem. We can deal with. We this. can fix that. It is interesting that it's Bridge Four who were, you know, the lowest of the lowest of Alethi society, the most rejected, who are the most willing to see past the fact that Relaine is not human. He's not, right. he's not Alethi. He's, uh, you know, related to the Voidbringers. And they're like, ah, you know, bridge, once Bridge Four, always Bridge Four. That's right. So he also drops an interesting... When you're a jet, you're a jet. All the way. From your first cigarette... To your last dying breath. Day. From your first cigarette to your last dying day. Day. Ah. That's how that goes. Yes. Strike. Strike one, Jet. (laughs) Well, it's taken me this long to get strike one, so I feel feel like I'm in good shape. So, uh, Relaine does drop a, a tidbit about the Parshendi gods. He says, "Yeah, that yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. They are the souls of those ancient, those who gave of themselves to destroy." Doesn't sound good. It doesn't. Not promising. No. Could they be wicked things of eminence? Don't know. And what the hell was that thing or those things walking around on the, around on the shattered plains during the last high storm? The giant glowing things. Yeah, I don't. We don't know. I mean, the Parshendi gods have returned. I think to this point, I've always thought about them as being sort of the death spren, the evil spren. Mm-hmm. But is it conceivable that that's not what it is? There's a sort of an evil version of the heralds that have come back, and that's who those guys are. Don't know. Hmm. I. I. Chapter 80 is called To Fight the Rain. Shalan is anxious to get to the center of the plains, but there are all these pesky Parshendi in the way. Thankfully, the high princes agree to press on towards Narak on the last day of the countdown. Back in the war camps, Elicar pays Kaladin a super awkward visit. It's true. True. Kaladin's like, why are you so obsessed with me? (laughs) I can't invite you to my pool party. You're a lesbian. (laughs) 
Oh, there all, are going to be girls in their bikinis there. All these rainstorms and this just world of depression that Kaladin's just sitting in. I mean, I mean, nothing lasts forever, right? We both know Parshman can change. Mean Girls quotes and Guns N' Roses lyrics. <laughs> this is the kind of right? quality entertainment you get. Kaladin's got to break out some candles <laughs> so he can fight the uh, cold November rain. <laughs> what did cross my mind in this chapter is that Dalinar and Royan and all these people, they left all their Parshman behind so now there are all these extra parchment or not extra but like all the parchment are left in the war camps but a huge section of the army is now gone whenever this change happens they've really shifted the balance of power there's a lot of parchment running around right now mm-hmm. i mean i don't have a census I don't think the parchment are going to outnumber the Alethi soldiers left, but Mm -hmm. it'd be interesting to see if that turns into anything. And then we have also, before we get to the situation with the king, where Kaladin, I almost called him Dalinar, where Kaladin once again starts going through this greater good thing. He's reminiscing about old rainstorms in Tien, and he realizes that the sergeant who sent Tien out there to die mm-hmm. did it for what he thought was the greater good. The, the greater, greater good. good. And that's a, I think that's sort of this concept to him kind of coming full circle of him seeing all the shit things that have been done in society and to him in the name of the greater good. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, I think that's a central theme that Brandon Sanderson's trying to explore here is that mm-hmm. there's no greater good. There's no lesser of two evils. It's still evil. You know, it, you, you're not, you can't do evil in the name of the greater good. Those things don't add up. And you also can't just sit back when you know something evil is about to happen and be like, oh, well. I can't do anything about it. Correct. Yeah. Kaladin, um, at this point, really reflects a lot on his regret for not grabbing onto his powers and taking ownership of them when he had the chance as well. He you does. Know? And yeah. he says at one point, how different a place would the world be if I had decided to be a better man? And then Elokar shows up. And and that's an interesting observation from this regard because it, one, it's him taking some ownership of right. his failing to be truthful and honest and 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 recognize the I hate to use it, but the the good he could have done, not greater good, but the good he could have done. Uh, but it's also in another way, sort of a continuance of him continuing to blame himself for everything. Mm-hmm. It's that false pride sort of thing. Mm-hmm. That's not the quite the right word I'm looking for, but like assuming this level of importance for himself that maybe isn't all isn't there. Is that am I? No, I don't think so. I mean, here he's saying that, you know, 
how different a place would the I could have changed the world and and maybe he could have but but yeah everything is is definitely still all revolving around Kaladin in his mind and then Elikar shows up with this this humility you know and Elikar is in kind of the opposite position his in I I think deep down in Elikar's mind and, and the way he visualizes himself he has control over nothing he's he's one of the least important people even though he's struggling to be seen as the king and to act like the king but deep down he knows that Dalinar's the real king yeah you know maybe not even so deep down well and he also seems to recognize because he comes to Kaladin and he asks him how how do you do right. it you know he seems to recognize that some people, Dalinar, Kaladin, have something he doesn't have. Yeah. Now, it's interesting here, and this is one of the things that I'm starting to enjoy about the characters in this book so far, is as much as it is annoying that characters kind of have these moments of revelation, and it's never more apparent in any of these books than Kaladin in this section. Mm -hmm. He recognizes the greater good thing is terrible. But then he kind of backslides on it. He mm -hmm. recognizes that killing the king or being involved is a terrible thing. But later he contemplates, I could do it now. Like, mm -hmm. like it's not this clear linear thing. But also you can see these sort of dual things, you know, these conflicted multiple things going on in a character mm -hmm. like Elikar. So, for instance, he comes here in this moment of humility. Mm-hmm. And asking, you know, and legitimately being humble and trying to figure out how to do the right thing. But the other side of that is that the answers have been in front of Elikar the whole time. Mm -hmm. He saw his father rule. He's seen what his uncle did. His uncle tried to get him the right, to read the way of kings. He comes to, to Kaladin asking, how can I be a better king? But... He, what he's looking for, he says, you have the secret. So he's looking for a secret. Mm -hmm. He's like the 16-year-old skinny kid who comes into the gym and says, what's the secret to getting a 300-pound bench which press? Which of these powders do I need to buy? Right, yeah. Looking for uh, some quick solution rather than recognizing that it's just hard work and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. As much as he does come humble, he's still looking for an easy way out. And it's interesting that, you know, we are getting these really complicated characters, which when I first started reading The Way of Kings, I did not feel that way about any of these characters. Mm -hmm. It takes a while. It's a slow burn. I would agree with that. Yep. Slow build up on the character development. Even when Kaladin really gives Elikar some brutal honesty, Elikar just says, well, I'm going to have to win you over. Yeah. You know? And it really, for the first time, you kind of like Elikar, or at least for me, I'm like, oh, like this guy is kind of willing to look past his his view of himself and, and willing to do some work to change who he is. Well, and the chapter and the section ends with Elikar owning up to and apologizing to Kaladin for what happened in the fighting in the fighting mm -hmm. pits yeah. where 
he ends up arresting Kaladin and, you know, everyone and blaming Kaladin for not being able to capture or trick Sadius. But he takes ownership of it and says, it was nothing to do with you. I was jealous of you. And I'm actually the one who destroyed the plan uh, by my overreacting, you know, and that and that I think was the more powerful thing mm-hmm. to me yeah. in this chapter. At the end, he says, and this is, I think, really important. He says to Kaladin, when you came, the shadows went away. Mm -hmm. I saw them in mirrors in the corners of my eye. I could swear I even heard them whispering, but you frightened them, and I haven't seen them since. So what do you think is up with that? Well, I, I, I... did a lot of reading and going back and trying to piece that together. On one hand, we've sort of always suspected, and what I have to this point suspected is that Elicar also has bonded to a cryptic spren just like Shallan has. Mm-hmm. And there's plenty of evidence that would tell you that that's the case. Or at least attracted them. Attracted them, yeah. But, and Pattern even says that cryptics and honor spread don't get along, leading you to some explanation of why they may have gone away when Kaladin showed up, when mm-hmm. they felt the presence of Syl. Mm-hmm. The description that he says, I, I went back and I read in uh, Way of Kings, and in chapter 58 of Way of Kings, Elicar has a, has a real kind of moment of clarity mm-hmm. when he says, sometimes I wonder if we're chasing the ten fools here. The assassin in white, he was Shin. The Parshendi took responsibility for sending him, sending him, Sadius said. Yes, Elicar replied, and yet they are savages and easily manipulated. It would be a perfect distraction, pinning the blame on a group of Parshmen. We go to war for years and years, never noticing the real villains working quietly in my own camp. And this is where mm-hmm. everyone starts to think he's crazy, so he dismi- they dismiss him. They watch me, always, waiting. I see their faces in mirrors, symbols twisted in human. Mm-hmm. And so this is right, right at the same time that we're in Shallan's chapters, and she's seeing... The symbol-headed creatures, creatures, you know. And if it wasn't for the word symbols, Mm -hmm. uh, then I think you could almost throw out this idea that he's seeing the same thing. Right. But he uses the word symbols twisted and inhuman. Right. I'm going back and forth into whether or not I think it's that the cryptics were trying to reach out to him and then they just backed away. Right. Or if that is actually a red herring... And it's a different kind of spren. Mm-hmm. So in the chapter, another chapter adjacent to that, it's the chapter that happens right before Shallan is first confronted with the cryptics, mm-hmm. is the chapter where Kaladin gets hung out on the flagpole right. and bounces around. And during that whole thing, he says he saw death spren. They were fist-sized and black with many legs, deep red eyes that glowed, leaving trails of burning light. Clustering around him, skittering this way and that. Their voices were whispers, scratchy sounds like paper being torn. 
Standing before the death spren was a tiny figure of light, not translucent as she had always appeared before. She stood guard on his chest, holding a sword made of light. It was pure and sweet. It seemed a glow of life itself. Whenever one of the death sprens got too close, she would charge at it, wielding her radiant blade, and the light warded them off. Aw. Sorry. That just made me, like, sad. <laughs> it's very sweet. I almost kind of wonder if it's... If the the way that Brandon Sanderson put it in that cadence was meant to make us think it was the same thing when it's really not the same thing. But I tend to think that's not the case. And it's mm-hmm. it's the word symbols in his description. Yeah. And twisted because well, pattern twi- symbol is sort of described as being a twisted pattern. Well, the reason why that I actually, I would agree with that. It does get used once or twice. But in all the chapters in this section leading up to this confrontation, they reference the Parshendi, the new storm form of the Parshendi, mm-hmm. as twisted. Mm. Like multiple times, every time somebody, Alethi, refers to them, they call them those twisted Parshendi. Mm-hmm. Those Parshendi who have bound themselves to these different evil spren. Mm-hmm. So that's why I thought, well, maybe the word twisted doesn't mean what we think it means here. Maybe Brandon Sanderson is hinting to us by relating this to these evil bonded Parshendi that there's something else at play. However, when it all comes back down to it, I think it's just the cryptics. All right, reach out, reach up, throwing you this rope. Please, (laughs) please. Save me. Save me, Duchess. <laughs> Pulling you out of the rabbit hole. Reel me out of here, please. <laughs> I've still got more pages of quotes to go. <laughs> I don't think any of it actually gets any closer to anything. But that's what this podcast is all about. Oh, good Lord. You just jumping down rabbit holes. Us laughing at you because we read the book already. <laughs> And you're a good sport about it. I try to be. <laughs> if so, you can't laugh at yourself, <laughs> everyone else is going to laugh at you anyway. So so before we wrap up, let's talk about the Snapters. Absolutely. From the last section. I have it all written down here. All right. So we've got two letters that have been revealed to us in Snapters. We do. Yes. So I'm going to read the first one. Which was part three or where? Part two? I don't eh, one know. Of the old parts. One of those parts. Yeah, yeah. And then you're going to read the repl- the response letter. Absolutely. Correct? Yep. All right, hang on. It's the Stormlight Epistles. <clears throat> letter the first. Old friend, I hope this missive finds you well. Though as you are now essentially immortal, I would guess that wellness on your part is something of a given. I realize that you are probably still angry. That is pleasant to know. Much as your perpetual health, I have come to rely upon your dissatisfaction with me. It is one of the Cosmere's great constants, I should think. Let me first assure you that the element is quite safe. I have found a good home for it. I protect its safety like I protect my own skin, you might say. You do not agree with my quest. I understand that. So much as it is possible to understand someone with whom I disagree so completely. Might I be frank? Before, you asked why I was so concerned. 
It is for the following reason. Atti was once a kind and generous man, and you saw what became of him. Race, on the other hand, was among the most loathsome, crafty, and dangerous individuals I had ever met. He holds the most frightening and terrible of all the shards. Ponder on that for a time, you old reptile, and tell me if your insistence on non-intervention holds firm. Because I assure you, race will not be similarly inhibited. One only need look at the aftermath of his brief visit to Selt to see proof of what I say. In case you have turned a blind eye to that disaster, know that Aona and Skye are both dead, and that which they held has been splintered, presumably to prevent anyone from rising up to challenge race. You have accused me of arrogance in my quest. You have accused me of perpetuating my grudge against race and Babadin. Both accusations are true. Neither point makes the things I have written to you here untrue. I'm being chased, your friends of the 17th Shard, I suspect. I believe they're still lost, following a false trail I left for them. They'll be happier that way. I doubt they have any inkling what to do with me should they actually catch me. If anything I've said makes any glimmer of sense to you, I trust that you'll call them off. Or maybe you could astound me and ask them to do something productive for once. For I've never been dedicated to a more important purpose, and the very pillars of the sky will shake with the results of our war here. I ask again. Support me. Do not stand aside and let disaster consume more lives. I've never begged you for something before, old friend. I do so now. And here is Letter the Second, The Reply. I'll address this letter to my old friend, as I have no idea what name you're currently using. Have you given up on the gemstone now that it is dead? And do you no longer hide behind the name of your old master? I am told that in your current incarnation you've taken a name that references what you presume to be one of your virtues. That is, I suspect, a little like a skunk naming itself for its stench. Now look what you've made me say. You've always been able to bring out the most extreme in me, old friend. And I do still name you a friend, for all that you weary me. Yes, I'm disappointed, perpetually as you put it. Is not the destruction we have wrought enough? The worlds you tread bear the touch and design of adenalsium. Our interference so far has brought nothing but pain. My path has been chosen very deliberately. Yes, I agree with everything you have said about race, including the severe danger he presents. However, it seems to me that all things have been set up for a purpose, and if we, as infants, stumble through the workshop, we risk exacerbating, not preventing a problem. Race is captive. He cannot leave the system he now inhibits. His destructive potential is therefore inhibited. Whether this was Tanavast's design or not, millennia have passed without race taking the life of another of the sixteen. While I mourn for the great suffering race has caused, I do not believe we could hope for a better outcome than this. He bears the weight of God's own divine hatred, separated from the virtues that gave it context. He is what we made him to be, old friend, and that is what he unfortunately wished to become. I suspect that he is more a force than an individual now. Despite your insistence to the contrary, that force is contained and an equilibrium reached. You, however, have never been a force for equilibrium. You tow chaos behind you like a corpse dragged by one leg through the snow. Please hearken to my plea. Leave that place and join me in my oath of non-intervention, the Cosmere itself may depend upon our restraint. No, I beg you to do what I want. No, mm. I beg you to do what I want. 
You're an idiot. <laughs> You're an old lizard. So tell me, tell me what what sticks out to you. What are your thoughts on these letters? So many things at once. All right. So the first letter, well, really, a, a note in the second letter says, "I'm told in your current incarnation you've taken a name that references what you presume to be one of your virtues." Mm-hmm. So it's talking to the first letter writer. Mm-hmm. So if somebody out there in the world has taken a name that represents a virtue, it would probably be honor. Okay, that's... It's a thought, mm-hmm. right? He also used to use the name of his old master. His old master, God? I, don't, I mean... So anyway, that that's the one... So that's the first uh, sort of thing that comes out. Uh, the other thing is we have, again, a reference to Tanavast... Yes. Who Kaladin is called Child of Tanavast. Yes. It seems to me like, you know, this race character has been, they say, contained. Mm-hmm. So as though he's been imprisoned or locked up somewhere. This writer of the second letter seems to believe that some sort of equilibrium has been reached. Mm-hmm. Some sort of... Cold War stalemate. We've referenced in the past that what's going on in Rashar with all these, you know, wars of the past and, you know, and radiance that pop up, it all seems very much like a Cold War kind of stalemate. Yes. I mean, it seems to me that this, it's insinuating to me that this race character is Odium. Mm-hmm. who is buried somewhere in this continent or trapped somewhere, imprisoned in Roshar, and either east of the continent or in the Shattered Plains. And this whole continent represents a losing battle between cultivation and honor and odium. And that this letter writer who thinks that there is this uh, equilibrium that that's not the case mm-hmm. as evidenced by the fact that again the whole two-thirds of the eastern side of the continent is covered in creme which has essentially all but destroyed the planet mm-hmm. and the only area with any fertile ground is in the extreme western side mm-hmm. with the shin right where cultivation reigns in that little tiny pocket that hasn't been entirely taken over meaning everybody else who lives on this continent in order to eat, has to resort to magical means to even gain basic things like food. And a lot of that magic and shards and all these things and shard blades come from exploiting captured souls. Seems like a terribly horrible thing. So, I don't know. Those are the things that come to mind. All right. Can't wait to hear your predictions. Well, I've got so many of them. But first... First. We have listener interactions. I've missed listener interactions. As do I. Let's see. All right, so we put up about... Well, I said said 12 hours ago, but it turned out to be about 16 hours ago uh, that we're going to be recording episode 96. Get your questions in now... And Gordon Ross said, 
anybody else forget there was a podcast attached to this group? <laughs> we have a podcast? I mean, you know, at one point there was a podcast. I don't, I don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> We're a loose affiliation of people. <laughs> Theogram Brown says, his question is, how fast can you load a massive ballista? <laughs> In reference to the enlarged crossbows that managed to destroy Rhaegal in oh. Game of Thrones episode four. Spoiler, well, sorry. Spoiler, sorry. Yes, that was that was a that was a pretty frustrating part of that episode for sure. Yes, and that never I, I saw a lot of I'm gonna take a little bit of a tangent. I saw a lot of memes and a couple of articles that said you know this whole history with dragons and all the old all the old targaryens and and all these old wars and they could have all just been shot down with a couple of souped up crossbows right is that the only reason why the targaryens managed to take over westeros is because nobody had thought to take nobody a, thought of that nobody thought of a scorpion but in the in the books, the dragons are so large, their scales are so hard that a scorpion would have really only injured a very, very small dragon. Mm -hmm. What's unclear in the show, because it's just unclear in the show, because, you know, details are lacking, is, you know, really how big these dragons sort of are, like, mm -hmm. in comparison to the older dragons. They're not that old, so... Mm -hmm. You know, I don't think we can compare them to Balerion, the, you know, the Black Dread, uh, who 100% would have not even been scratched by a scorpion. Well, that's true. We do forget that Daenerys' dragons are like Three or four years still. old. You yeah, know, they're yeah. toddlers. Yeah, they're not old, you know. So it's not, uh, it's not really an inconsistency within the world, but it is annoying. Well, I mean, they're... We're not going to devolve into a Game of Thrones let's, reaction. Let's style. Let's style. I guess. But <laughs> uh, and then Eric Allgaier, I just, <laughs> we just have to try and describe this. He took the picture of the, the infamous scene with Daenerys having a coffee cup in front of her, which I, I hope. Was, oh, I just, I just now seeing it. If anyone, if anyone has seen that, apparently there was a gaffe that has now been fixed in that Game of Thrones episode where there was a Starbucks <laughs> cup in front of Daenerys Stormborn. And uh, Eric has uh, photoshopped in a Duke and Duchess coffee mug, which might be the best thing I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So Theo Graham Brown has a Words of Radiance question as well. Lopin makes a point, it seemed to me, of telling Kaladin there's only one of him. Do you think maybe there isn't and his cousins are actually some sort of doubles? No. No, I don't. No. <laughs> no, I, don't I don't think that. That'd be cool, though. That would be cool. No, I think the Lopin is just the, the most self-assured person in Roshar. I love it. Like, he, he knows who he is. He knows what he is. He's not trying to prove anything to anybody. He makes himself happy. You got to love the Lopin. We should all strive to be like the Lopin. I know I do. Josh Corcoran said, uh, did the kids go to bed quickly and quietly? And is it late enough for the show to get crazy? 
they did okay. They were pretty tired tonight. I don't know how crazy the show got. I was going to say no, no, and no. (laughs) They did not go to bed quickly or quietly. And no, it's not late enough. For the show to get, hey man, to we're get too crazy. we're exhausted. We we took kids to the beach for a week, and then uh, to the U.S. Fi- cheerleading finals for a weekend, and and that will just suck the energy out of you. And had like four uh, four birthdays or kids' birthdays. We had to take them all to all in the middle of this all in the same two weeks. So yeah, no, we're trying. We're just trying to get back to the basics of being able to <laughs> podcast. We'll, post-vacation laundry podcast that's right we'll save the crazy <laughs> for another time i think the craziest part of this podcast is that i just spiraled and spiraled and spiraled <laughs> and spiraled down the rabbit hole a theogram brown says navani says this of yasna she sometimes had the empathy of a corpse didn't she comes from being too brilliant feels like another rock on the pile from Teravangian's curse slash blessing Ooh. Do we think Sanderson really thinks this, or is it just a world thing? I'm trying to think if I agree or not, and it's tough. Very interesting point. And I do think that Taravangian's intelligence versus empathy thing is um, is going to be important thematically to the book. But I hadn't I hadn't thought about it as it relates to Yasna as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's it was definitely the first thing I thought of when I read that line as well, because we had just had in the last uh, episode such a big sort of discussion about it. I, if I had to guess, and if I had to put words in Brandon Sanderson's mouth, uh, and I will, I, I would <laughs> say I think Brandon Sanderson probably thinks that this is a tendency, but I think we would all agree that we know plenty of people who are not very intelligent who are also very cruel and people Mm -hmm. who are quite brilliant who are also highly empathetic. So I don't think, I don't think any of us would think that this is, you know, a a really strong relationship with a high degree of correspondence. I I certainly don't. And Yasna, you know, I I mean, in the real world, Oh, in the real world. In the real world. Yeah, Yeah. no, absolutely not. Uh, More as like a thematic kind of thing in the books. Um, Mm -hmm. Yasna's a little different from Taravangian in that a lot of her exterior, I think, comes from self-preservation and trying to function as a as a um, a female who doesn't want to get married and doesn't want to become a wife in in a culture where that's not accepted. Um, but but I do really think Teravangian's condition is a really interesting way to to look at um, whether intelligence or empathy is more important in yeah, a leader. It, it's a very interesting thing. One of the things that we have said from the beginning that we like about fantasy is that it's a genre that allows us sometimes to put people, humans, into these really extreme situations and sort of see how we think they might respond or react or what's important. It it almost gives us like a little bit of a laboratory to sort of play with things that we can't really play with in the real world. Mm -hmm. Like we put somebody on this weird spectrum, you Mm -hmm. know, and how does that play out? You know, so yeah, it is fascinating, but I don't, I don't think 
I don't think we want to delve too far into questioning how much that applies to the real world, mm-hmm. because I don't think it does. Right. Susan King says, and she's quoting here, Elicar made to leave. He stopped at the door, not looking at Kaladin. When you came, the shadows went away. The shadows? I saw them in mirrors, in the corners of my eye. I could swear I even heard them whispering, but you frightened them. I haven't seen them since. Susan says, so where did the shadows go? Why did they go? Is Elicar a radiant or not? So we we dug into this a little bit. I mean, I still, despite my rabbit hole, think it is the cryptics. And I don't know, did they find Elicar wanting? Or did Syl scare them did away? Did Syl scare them away? I don't know. Don't know. So Susan King also um, quotes the section where Dalinar is talking about having the new shard blade and uh, where he talks about it feeling wrong. And I don't know if we got into this in the episode. We didn't. We didn't. But she asked, uh, why does it feel strange for Dalinar to hold the shard blade? Is it because he's supposed to be using an honor blade? It's interesting because the only person we've seen so far with that experience is Kaladin who is bonded or was bonded to an honor spren but we have seen in Adolin and Dalinar this idea of like the battle lust uh, creating the sickness in them are, are these hints that Adolin and Dalinar are going to eventually attract their own honor spren and become mm-hmm. radiance. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing the very beginnings of that. Or is Dalinar becomes somehow more sensitive to these things because of exposure to honor, mm-hmm. the God honor. I, I don't, I don't know, but it definitely leads me to think that it's likely that uh, he and Adolin are going to eventually end up being Knights Radiant as well. Mm-hmm. Brian Williams says, well, I'm excited for you to get to Oathbringer. Have the Duke and Duchess considered reading any sci-fi books, specifically The Expanse or the Red Rising series? Pierce Brown is an author you would enjoy if you like Rothfuss's prose and walks the line between fantasy and sci-fi. I love both of those series mentioned. The Expanse is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. It is, mm -hmm. you know. Yep. You talk about that one a lot. That Mm -hmm. is one that when the new one comes out, don't talk to me. Yeah. <laughs> for a couple of days. It is long and it was well, I would say it's been on the list and we would love to cover some sci-fi. Um I don't know if we would do a huge long series. I would love to have you read uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky's Children of Time. That's mm. like a one-off or he may have written a sequel but it um it's so interesting. So interesting. I think the reality is is that we have far more books that we would like to cover than we can cover. I mean, we're, we're really only three series that we've covered so far, you know. We'd like to cover lots of them, but we, you know, we made a sacrifice when we chose to do this format that we were going to get really deep with a handful of series rather than to be very broad with lots of series. And not that we can't mix that up and change that around. We certainly can. uh, But that's not the road we've chosen to go down so far. I would say that uh, Paper Girls has a bit of a sci-fi vibe, but I still think it's more fantasy than 
I'd call it more sci-fi than fantasy. Would you? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yep. And Saga also has a bit of that, but I would definitely call that more fantasy than sci-fi. Yes. We've covered Ready Player One, but I do think that the sci-fi genre, we haven't given it its due. I would agree with that. So, short. that's the long answer. Uh, the shorter answer is we've made no decisions. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Along those same, same lines, uh, Ruan Narciso says... Any chance the next book being Gardens of the Moon? Um, again, and with all of these, we, we really don't know what we're doing after Oathbringer. Correct. Um, and Steven Erickson, I think, would be an interesting one for us to do. And it might help me understand it better. Uh, his books are super, super dense. But once you get into them, then you're, then you're really sucked into them as well. And definitely they're ones that you need to go through slowly and kind of pick apart and a lot of, it's very, very complicated storytelling. I've even, I mean, I think we've found and and without getting too into it, I think we've discovered in doing this podcast that even stories that we really like that are really well written, but they're not necessarily intended for you to read them slowly, aren't always a good match for, right. for this format. Right. So, so maybe they would be a good, a good candidate. Put it on the list. It goes on the list once again. Uh, Eric Allgaier says, "Ignore this if you've already addressed it, but are you still trying to make Balticon episode one hundred? Hell yes. yes, hell yeah, we are. If we had to put on an episode that's just Chad farting, <laughs> why, why call me, that episode? Why 99? me farting?" Why does it have to be me farting? You know why. Because <laughs> you're a fart knocker. Oh, damn. I'm sorry. That was aggressive. That was aggressive. Mean. Okay. It is now late enough we for the podcast to get wacky. We are supposed to be married. Officially. <laughs> so, yeah, we're, we're still going to be at Balticon. Our, we're going to be at several... Uh, what's the word of that? Panels. Panels. We're going to be on several panels each. Uh, but our panel, our podcast, is going to be Saturday night, the 25th at 7 p.m.? Yes, 7 p.m. We are also doing together a Game of Thrones reaction panel. Yeah. On Saturday at 1. So for everyone who wants to hear all of our many, many, many thoughts that, that we are collecting over Game of Thrones Season 8. One o'clock on Saturday, we'll be doing that panel. Show up in Baltimore, yeah. Now, I think it's going to work perfectly with the way the weeks have lined up and how much we have left in the book. I think it's all going to line up perfectly. But if we end up, because uh, I think we'll end up probably recording episode like 99, like here the night before and right. then going out the following day and, and, record, and going to Balticon, uh, I mean... That if we have to sit on episode hundred for a week before we release it, that's not a big deal. It's going to take me that long to recover from Balticon, right? So I think it's going to work out perfectly, right? And I, we're really excited to to meet some listeners face to face. Let us know on the Facebook group page if you're going to make it out, yeah, or absolutely. message us because um, we would like to, you know, do some kind of get together. We would. Unfortunately, they changed the time of our panel, which really kind of 
complicated that because uh, we were planning on like getting dinner and then they threw our panel in at like 7 p.m., which is like and then we have other panels kind of surrounding it, which uh, are going to kind of complicate that. So we'll have to figure out w- what that's going to look like. But mm-hmm. we definitely are, are excited uh, to get to see some folks in person and see some folks again and spend some time with everybody. I know uh, Susan King is going to be there. Catherine Stewart's going to be there. I think uh, Katie Hess, I think, is going to be there. handful of other people that are going to be there as well. So excited about that. Hoffman Art Gallery says, I've asked this before, uh, but now that you're end of, at the end of Words of Radiance, do you have any guesses on who will be the flashback chapter or the flashback character in Oathbringer? I think it's going to be a colon. It's either going to be Adolin, Dalinar, or Yasna. Is going to be the uh, kind of focus character for all the flashbacks. So you think Yasna's alive? Oh, I 100% think Yasna's okay. alive. I think Yasna's alive, and I think she's going to show up at, before the end of this book. Okay. That's, that's what I think. Uh, if I had to guess, I would say it's going to be Dalinar. But I could see it being any of the... Surviving Colins. All right. It's time for, before we get to the predictions, it's time time for reviewing books we haven't read. We haven't read. No, that was terrible. It's supposed to be terrible, Liz. That's the (laughs) idea behind it. Oh, it's it's making my OCD crazy. It's the anti-polished podcast. Okay, so on this installment of reviewing books we haven't read, Chad here is going to review the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks. Oh, I loved it. Which, by the way... Never read it. He hasn't read. (laughs) So what did you think about the Lightbringer series? So the series Lightbringer is about a man, a man on a mission. He, He is a... He just got divorced from his wife, his young son. He's trying to, 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 to be strong in the face of this and live in this world. He's, he's a man who drives a truck. He's a man who drives across this great country in an iron steed, carrying a huge container of light bulbs because he's going to bring the light and what did you think of Kip as a main character? I thought he lacked pizzazz. Did he, you? He was kind of a stick in the mud. <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I think they tried to show some real uh, character growth there, but uh, it just didn't do it for me. And the the big question we have with the Lightbringer ser- of series. Of course, of course. I know what of you're going to say. Of course, is Gavin or Dazen? I think uh, I think the real answer is uh, is uh, Colton. It, it's the third <laughs> option. It's Colton. He can't, you know, he can't be there and be a part of this world and a part of this life without my bro Colton. High five, Colton. <laughs> well, there you have it. That's our review of the Lightbringer series by Brent Weeks. I give it three stars. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, it was it was ambitious, but I don't think it brought it all home. <laughs> okay, now predictions. All right, predictions. First, I think Renarin will end up being a Knight's Radiant. I don't know what kind of Knight's Radiant, but I think his epilepsy is some sort of thing that's going to predispose him to, uh, we're going to find out that that's not what it is at all, and he's going to have some sort of power. Next prediction, somebody is going to make an attempt on Kaladin's life while Dalinar's away. Next prediction, Shallan will eventually end up with Kaladin over Adolin. Shaladin, baby. Shaladin all the way. Ride or die. Uh, fourth prediction, Yasna can melt stone with a touch. Mm. Fifth prediction, Kaladin is going to prevent Moash from murdering Elikar. That is when he will find... The next set of words. Hmm. I mean, that seems to be where this is going. I kind of hope that's where it's going. Mm-hmm. Although it would be really cool if he manages to somehow save Elicar without Stormlight. But that doesn't seem to be a very Brandon Sanderson thing to do. <laughs> uh, next prediction, the Oathgate is going to require multiple Knights Radiant. I think that's already been hinted at in the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vatha, I think, is tied somehow to the Ghost Bloods. Okay. I think the army does not make it back before the High Storm. I think everyone is going to think that Dalinar is dead. We're going to see all kinds of chaos. Mm -hmm. Somehow they're going to end up opening up Eurothero and coming out through that gate, through an Oath Gate somewhere else i kind of think it would be interesting but i don't think this is going to happen if they ended up like on the other side of roshar mm-hmm. you know this huge army mm-hmm. comes out of a storm you know out of the uh, oath gate like right near the shen cap the shin capital mm-hmm. they're like you can't have all these swords here what's wrong with you <laughs> uh, i think gaz is going to die protecting shallan I think Amaram is going to somehow find a way to show up in Narok. Okay. I think Yasna is in Narok. I think Iali, mm-hmm. Sadius' wife, is going to somehow betray him. Mm-hmm. And I think that the Parshendi that remain in the war camps are going to end up attacking the Alethi who remain. Okay. Those are my predictions. Good predictions. I hope so. Do you have anything else? I don't. All right. It's you past can... midnight. <laughs> Called you a fart knocker. Trying to get back into this podcasting <laughs> groove while remembering that we are married to each other. For better, for worse. Noxious odors or nasty terms. <laughs> Unnecessary. You can find us at the Duke and Duchess Podcast.com. That's our website. That's our home on the internet. But you can find us most of the time hanging out in on Facebook or in our Facebook group page. That is at facebook.com backslash groups backslash the DND group. 
Uh, on Facebook, you can also also search for the Duke and Duchess. On Twitter, we are at the DND Podcast. You can also find us on Instagram, on Goodreads, on Reddit by searching up the Duke and Duchess Podcast. Please come hang out with us. We only do this for attention. <laughs> it's really true. It's, 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 it's true. It's the only reason why we do this. And again, we will remind you, come hang out with us at Balticon 53 on May 25th at 7 p.m. in Baltimore, Maryland. We look forward to having you. That's right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Ah! Do you hear that? That's the frustration of a woman trying to bone a chicken with an ordinary blade. It's a real hassle. Tell me about it, disembodied voice in my kitchen. You can put your worries behind you. There's finally a blade strong and sharp enough for all your household needs. Get ready for Shard Blade. Shard Blade comes from the farthest edge of the cosmos. It stays incredibly sharp with the science of magic. Wow! It's six feet long. That seems unwieldy. Does it come with a paring knife? Look at how it cuts through the spine of your enemies. Hey, that's my dog. And it's still sharp enough to slice through this tomato. You just cut through my new granite countertop. I know. Isn't it amazing? You'll never need to clutter your kitchen with a shard blade. When you're done, just drop it. Where does it go? No one knows. Sure, it's sharp and convenient, but how does it work? We may never know. Shard blade, order yours today. Do not use shard blade in the presence of children, old people, or anyone you love. D&D Enterprises takes no responsibility for your house falling down around your ears. D&D Enterprises is not responsible for the death of any sprint, cannot be held liable for the death of the Cosmere. Please allow five days for bonding. Shardblade, made with the science of magic.